Hello and welcome back to the latest Tink Business podcast powered by Bank of Ireland. The unsung heroes and heroines of the Irish venture funding world, our business angels, have played a crucial role in bringing innovative Irish businesses to the next level. We talked to John Phelan of the Halo Business Angels Network about how the organisation is spreading its wings to create outposts in UK, Europe, Singapore and Silicon Valley. Angel investment, I only heard of the term myself in the 90s and as I understand it, HBAN, the Halo Angel Business Network in Ireland, an all-Ireland organisation, has really, I mean, you, you began working on it as a pilot in 2007, but it, it seems to have accumulated a lot of ground since then in terms of the sheer amount of money invested or raised and invested in Irish companies. Tell us, tell us about you know what's well first of all what is hban you know what is it as quintessential angel investor in ireland it sounded like a short question there john but actually there's an awful lot in that so so if i take it from the very beginning what is hban it's an umbrella organization for all angel activity on the island of ireland i mean that's essentially it if you want to look at it in more simpler terms it's a dating agency that's the easiest way to look at it what we do. On the one side, we have high net worth individuals who want to invest in good quality, well-filtered companies. And on the other side, we have good quality companies coming through with great opportunities. We put the two together and we let them go at it. So what we always say is we're the marriage with the planned divorce. And the planned divorce bit is the exit bit. So we're all very good at getting money into companies. Really, what you need to see is the exit at the end. How that exit comes about, there's new ways coming through in terms of secondary markets and everything else. And I'll come to that a bit later on. But that's that's sort of the, 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 the hypothesis behind it. If I go back to what you were saying there in terms of when did we start in 2007, that pilot, I remember starting uh, going to meetings where we had three companies in a room, which really didn't deserve to be getting any money from anywhere at all. But on the other side of the table, we had three investors who really didn't have much money at all and probably weren't going to invest either. And it was just getting that from that stage to where we are now, which is that we have cumulatively done nearly 600 deals. We've done over 125 million has gone into those 600 deals just from our network. On top of that, another 240 odd million has gone in. So 360 million has gone into those 600 deals since that 2007 date. That's a lot of capital. Each year, we're starting to get anywhere between 60 and 70 deals per year. Anywhere between 15 and 20 million is invested from, from our network. But on top of that, there's another 30 to 40 million. So in 2020 and in 2019, we had 55 million was invested in between 60 and 70 companies each year. So you're getting into big quantums of capital. Yeah. And, and who would be the typical angel investor? Like when you think about it, often people think of it as, I, I, in my imagination, it's usually somebody who has made their money in life and still wants to be part of something exciting. Often it isn't just money to bring to the table. It's also expertise and knowledge. And they just love being part. They just love working with other business people. In my mind's eye, the typical angel investor is very male. But I do know from your own work that you've been trying to change that and, and, and get more uh, female uh, angel investors on board. They're my assumptions. Can you correct me if I'm wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, stale male and pale is probably pretty um, <laughs> accurate. But I think it's it is evolving, it is changing quite a bit, and you see that globally because everybody recognised over the last five or ten years that stale, male and pale 
that lack of diversity and that's that lack of dynamism and bringing new thoughts to the table is holding everybody back. So what we are seeing is certainly on the age band side, we made a we put our hands up about three or four years ago and said, listen, we're pretty crap at the female angel bit. We had 3% of angels that were female who were active. We've now got up that up to somewhere around the 11% mark. And we've got activities which are specifically focused on how do we, how do we attract more female angels into the equation? Because it's good for everybody. It's not just good for female angels. It's good for all the investors and it's good for all the companies. So, mm. There's a rationale there for that. Um, in terms of the, the profile that you, you mentioned, I suppose we would have always said there's probably two specific profiles of, of individuals that would invest. One is the cashed out entrepreneur, so somebody who's just sold their business and is coming back in to look for, uh, to go again and to help companies. I mean, the smart money is really, there's a lot to be said for it. It's not just cash going in. You're bringing either technical expertise or you're bringing commercial expertise and a network to get into the, the, the global economy. So those things are hugely valuable beyond the cash. The, the second type of person would be a multinational executive who has spent a lot of time overseas, but has now come back, has a massive international network, wants to invest in early stage companies and introduce them to their network. And that's a huge benefit as well. Well, I suppose where the, the to demystify what the profile is, it's probably it's 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 come it's come to more of a retail version, I would say, in the last five years. Whereas we used to have somebody come in to say, I have two hundred and fifty thousand euros, I want to put it on black. That one company there, that's what I want to put my money on. And now, because the syndicates have grown, and I'll, come, I'll, I'll, I'll give you sort of some, some insight of the syndicates in a while, but the syndicates have grown massively now to the extent that people are confident with the other people around the table, where they all say, right, I have 250,000. This is just an example. I'll put 25,000 into 10 different companies, but I'll do it with the other people around this table who will all do something similar. So the company still gets 250,000, but now you have it from 10 investors who all have something to bring to the table that may not just be more, maybe just more than cash. So you have the smart money coming in from a couple of different people around the table who understand that domain really deeply and they understand the networks and they can, they can connect people in. So, so there's more, more to it than, um, than, than just the cash, like we said earlier, but, what that means is that even if you look at last year in, in the H-band stats, 50, or sorry, 80% of the deals of the individuals that invested, invested 50,000 euros or less. 50% invested 25,000 or less. So you're getting into a more reasonable amount of capital. It's still a lot of money. Let's, mm. let's, not, let's not be silly about it. And we do say it is high risk, so you have to be able to, to, to afford to lose it. But you're getting into a space that is um, more affordable for people to actually look at this as an asset class to invest in. And that's the thing. I mean, does that, that distributed way of doing it get away from that kind of, uh, I suppose, lamentable model where, I think, uh, to quote uh, Astia Angels, uh, various people I've met from that, that group, uh, that 
you know, the problem with a lot of the Silicon Valley investors was mostly male, pale and stale, as you say, but they were, you know, they, were, they, they tended to invest in people who looked like them and, you know, on the other side of the table. Tell us about how this syndicate model actually lends itself to, the, to better diversity, but also uh, how many syndicates there are in Ireland and how, how they're focused. Are they focused on particular industry genres? Are they focused on particular regions? How, how does that work too? So they can be sector specific or region specific, and I'll go into that. I suppose if I go back again to the 2007, where we started with those three people on one side of the table and three on the other side, how that has evolved over the years is that we saw syndicates were coming about through Scotland was starting to do them, uh, the US was starting to do them, and the EU started to do them. And we could see that sort of... Um, a trend coming about 10 years ago. So, so we ended up starting some syndicates, the Bloom Syndicate, the Bull Syndicate. Um, in terms of sector specific, we have the MedTech Syndicate down in Galway. And if you think about it, the MedTech Syndicate, a lot of the people in that syndicate come from the medical devices background. They have huge deep domain knowledge, but not only technically, but they understand the supply chain. They understand the international sales um, network. They also understand where the product profiles are missing for the gaps in terms of what may be acquired at a later stage and where those, those likelihoods will be. So that's very specific in, in med tech. Generalist tech, we would have Bull, Bloom, um, Belfast, uh, so we have the North, obviously, as well. We have Southeast and we have Cork. And we've recently started the Kerry Angel Network. And the Kerry Angel Network is just beginning to kick off. They have another meeting now on May 28th. Mm. Um, and they're just closing their first deal. So we look forward to that. So what, what we saw was the evolution part was we had individuals coming in saying, I want to put 250,000 euros in. Bang. That then grew into the syndicate model. Hmm. Then what we saw was that the syndicates started investing with syndicates. So MedTech, say, would come in and say, we can see the opportunity here. Then we'd have the Iris group who will be more MedTech than Generalist Tech. They would say, we'll join you. And then you'd have Bull and Bloom who would also join. So now you have the syndicates of syndicates investing, which is getting very interesting. <laughs> so there was one deal last year, which is Crevalve. This is in the public domain which ended up with 48 individual investors, but it was under three nominee structures between three mm. of the different syndicates. But then what we started to see was that we, we started a, a New York syndicate about three years ago, a Singapore syndicate and a London syndicate. We started seeing that they started to co-invest with all the syndicates here. So you're now getting a, a massive sort of evolution. of. of yeah, but also what's interesting is you guys are going international. It's brilliant. And the London syndicate has now done two million into about nine deals wow. in the last two years. So, okay. so we're starting to get some really good traction there. And we're, we have a pilot in Dubai and Singapore is doing quite well as well. We tell Singapore me, meeting tomorrow. Tell me about the companies, because when you have international, sorry, when you have syndicates investing in you, what does that do to your cap table? Is it a complicated situation or does the syndicate structure simplify that rather than having, say, dozens and dozens of investors to look after that the fact that there's a syndicate there and that, that, that works itself out? Is, is, that, is that a fair assumption? It is, yeah. And uh, the, the easiest way to, to, to explain that is what we do is we have what's called a nominee structure. 
Mm. So a nominee structure is effectively one unit. And say, if for, if for example, you had 10 investors, what they would do is all invest in that one company, that one nominee structure, and they would appoint a, um, a guardian as such to that who would be um, uh, look after their interests so that the company only needs to deal with one person. And legally, it's only, the cap table has only got this one unit, even though there might be 10 people underneath it. Very good. So it keeps it simplified so no one's going to be squabbling over proceeds of trade sales or... You know. And the companies themselves, I mean, like, there's been an impressive list of companies, actually. You mentioned Creva there, for example, and, you know, others. I mean, it, has there been any big payouts yet or any big exits yet? Or is it still a case that a lot of these companies are still on their journey? Uh, we've started to see some in the last couple of years. So I suppose DecaWave was probably the biggest one last year. They sold for 400 million. We mm. had a number of a number of people in there for 3 million, I think. So of the 50 million that they raised, so they, they had a good chunk of it. Very good. Um, and they, they would have got a good return out of that as well. We had um, a number of other deals for that were exits last year as well. Just trying to think of the top of my head. Iconic Translations was one. Um, iCabby was one a couple of years ago. Forest was one a couple of years ago. So the exits are starting to come now. And, and I suppose that everybody sort of says it's easy to invest the money. How do you get your money back out? And what we're starting to see is, is that secondary markets are kind of beginning to come and beginning to become more um, acceptable to people. And what that means is that you might have a private equity house or you might have a later stage VC or something coming in. Mm. So listen, we, we want to exit the early stage guys just to clean up the cap table and to, to, to make it more acceptable for our investors. Essentially, what we'll do is we won't pay out the full uh, multiple, but we'll give them a good multiple on their original investment. So they might get 6 or 10x their money back. If they waited, they might get 20x back, but that's the risk that they'd have to wait another five years hmm. or they just take the money out now. And in some cases, what we're seeing is that they, the, the original investors are being offered their initial capital out, but they can leave in the extra there. Mm-hmm. So actually, they're, 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 yeah, so in terms of risk, they've just de-risked it totally. And I suppose then the next thing is the COVID crisis. Did that have a dampening effect on, because the key, the key thing to all of this is obviously getting people together. And I know you have your annual conference and all that, but getting the people into a room, making them feel comfortable about investing, uh, suddenly everything has gone virtual. I mean, I'm sure a lot of what you did was virtual in the first place uh, before COVID. But did, did, did COVID have an effect, first of all, on the ability to get people together and two, on their willingness to invest? Because a lot of people were probably also watching if they had businesses of their own and they were probably struggling in the, in the, in the, in the, in the situation. So we're taking two parts. So I think if if you if you go back to when all this kicked off in March 2020, that scared the hell out of a lot of people. And I think on the investor side, it scared them for a number of different reasons. One is that they didn't know if they were going to invest in this company, was that company's customers going to be alive? So, so that was a real concern. The second part of that, which was probably more frightened the hell out of them, was that if you think about um, a private network, a private um, investor, they've probably got five or ten percent max of their their um, assets in this asset class because it is high risk. 
they've probably got a majority of it in, in shares and stocks and everything else. But the stock markets took a hit of 40-50% in a lot of the shares uh, between March and June of last year. Mm. And I think that frightened the life out of people more because they suddenly saw their own net worth disappearing in front of them. Mm. Uh, now, I have no empirical evidence behind this. This is just my own sort of, uh, sort of assumptions, I suppose. But then in, in, in June, it started picking up again and the stock market started doing really well. So suddenly everybody's back up to at least where they were. And then it actually got better again. And the confidence came back. So we, we saw a bit of a, I'd say we saw a dip in March, April, May, and then it came back. To the extent that we did 60 deals last year. In 2020, we did 66 in 2019. So we did not far off where we were. And, and I suppose the, the point about getting people together, like do, do you, was it hard to get people into a room or you know, has everything gone by Zoom? <laughs> Pretty much we went overnight to complete Zoom and it actually worked out really well because we're now getting more people on the calls. We're getting people on the calls from Japan, from Singapore, from the, the West Coast of the States. We're joining our calls here in the morning uh, or in the evening depending on what suits them. Or if they don't, we send them a link and they just look at it later and then they commit. And if they commit and they want to engage further, they'll engage in the follow-up calls at the companies. And we have seen quite a lot more activity with that as well. I suppose the big question then is going to be, how are you going to do going forward? Mm. (laughs) Um, And I do think a lot of people want to meet people and they want to see the whites of the eyes and not just in the companies but just in their fellow investors just just to sort of get a sense of who these people are Mm. so i I think we'll probably end up going back to a blended approach is very good and i suppose another question then would be your thoughts on the overall funding landscape in ireland now you've had so much happening to the business landscape you've had everything from businesses being kept alive by government supports you've had looking at the irish venture capital situation um record deals being done at the high end of the market uh, a lot of concern at the lower end of the market for a while there seems to be some evidence that it seems to be bouncing back a bit in terms of early stage investments you've seen other forms of investment emerge you know uh, not, not they're not exactly new but their crowdfunding is, is seems to be gaining pace uh, in ireland to a degree i mean uh, when you look at angel investing that's a form of crowdfunding too i suppose how do you, what are your thoughts on the overall funding landscape in ireland how it's weathered the storm and what it means for uh, supporting businesses as they come out of the pandemic so i think i i, I was at a conference last week if i can say i was at a conference in the us it was virtually US based <laughs> I, I was virtually but because it's all workshop based and everything else you actually have to start at 5 p.m and finish at 1 a.m so you were kind of there yeah but one of the interesting stats that, that one of the the economists threw out was how the investment landscape has de-risked over the last 10, 11 years in the US to the extent that if you look at the companies that are being invested in back in 2010, I think it was 9% of those companies um, had revenue. So most of them were were pre-revenue. If you look at it like that, so 91%. Mm. To the extent that in 2018, 51% of those companies now had revenue. 
So if you look at it like that, and that's some, that's a trend we've seen, I suppose, on the on, from the H-band side, um, is that a lot of investors, VCs and privates and angels and family offices and everything else, are all now waiting for for they're all de-risking their investments and waiting for some revenue to come in to validate commercially there's a demand for this product. And there's a couple of different explanations for that. I mean, one is, is is obviously that it's a hell of a lot easier to bring technology to the market these days. So you can actually build something in an MVP out of open source, you just knock it together and send it out there. So there is those kind of arguments. But I think it does say that there is a pre-revenue early stage seed gap that is, has, has opened up. And I think that's acknowledged everywhere. There are some seed funds coming out. Dublin Big have their, their latest seed fund, which is the 23 million seed fund. You have Yield Lab out in, in Galway, and you have a number of, uh, obviously, Enterprise Ireland have just put out their new call for their 85 million fund. So I think there's, there's, there's an acknowledgement and an intent to try and fix it. The big one for me has always been um, EWIS, which is just not fit for purpose, mm. make it fit for purpose have it specialized pre-seed possibly might be one way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, my sense has always been that it's overcomplicated and people just don't want to use it. Mm. And that's the thing, I mean, that we've been banging that drum since, I don't know, I, I know I've been since the noughties. And, uh, you know, it's um, well, along with other things like capital gains tax, et cetera, that, that you know, just do, do not compare well with the UK, for example, where they're really getting behind their entrepreneurs. And, um, you, you know that would you say that would be the structural shift you'd like to see in the next budget that that they do sort this out that that this you know to make EIS a bit more fit for purpose sort of the capital gains tax issues. So my understanding is so so we go a lot of us came together in terms of a lot of groups came together um, hmm. under with Scale Ireland the Irish Venture Capital Association, uh, Euronext and uh, Tech Ireland and ourselves all came together to to, to have an alliance uh, for technology which we put in a, a joint submission around EIS and what we would like to see happen to that. Another big one there would be the ability to fund through uh, EIS to create a fund like a VCT in the UK, which is a fund of funds effectively. Hmm. And you can't do that here. And, and that has knocked out quite a few professional investors being able to pull together EIS funds to be able to invest at a more retail level. Hmm. So I think... If we can get something like that on the go, that'd be great. Um, capital gains tax, I understand it's difficult. Um, I, I think the political will, the optics of it are there, but I don't think the, 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 the heavy lifting is there because there's just too much of an effort to try and get cash into these companies by saying, and let's call a spade a spade, you're giving rich people tax breaks to invest in these things so they can make more money when the hospitals are shutting down, mm. schools are doing this, that, and the other. And that's a difficult uh, square to, 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 to circle. But at the end of the day, if these people have capital, why are you incentivizing to put into property all the bloody time? And yeah. why don't you do something that's actually productive and put mm. it into early stage technology companies? Stop supporting yourselves and actually start supporting something that actually has productive for the, for the country rather than the political classes. 
I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, uh, we don't, we don't, we don't want to do to, to uh, upset the political class. I think there, there, there's enough war going on around everything else, and certainly around the property stakes. In terms of, I suppose, the future, you guys. Uh, what I was very, very interested to see was the outposts you're establishing in Singapore and London, and you mentioned there the West Coast. So, what does the future look like for HBAN? Because HBAN in Ireland, Halo Business Angel Network, All Ireland Network, is now becoming an international network. Uh, what does that future hold and how do you how do you see yourself structuring for that? Well, I think if you look at it, I mean, my view has always been that we would see maybe 10 to 15 percent in Ireland of the investing uh, individuals. Mm. As much as we like to think that we're probably well known in Ireland, I don't think we are. I think we are in our own little bubble of, of people that we deal with. I think the wider general public haven't a Barney's who HBAN are. Um, and I do think that if we can attract, and I think there's an opportunity to attract at least another 10 to 20% of people to invest with the HBAN that already exists, which doubles the size of it effectively in terms of the amounts that are there to be invested. If they understood that there's well-qualified deal flow coming through and that they could be investing with syndicates of people who actually understand the technologies that they're investing in. So I think at a minimum, there's the ability to double what we do in Ireland. And then once we start doing that and we start getting the exits from that, I think the, the global piece will grow on top of all of that. Brilliant. With that, John, thank you very much for your time. That was super. Thanks, John. Appreciate it.